This is Art Matters. I'm Farron Gibson. This podcast is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's public art collections. Explore art from around the nation at artuk.org. You can find me on social media at Farron Gibson and follow Art UK on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at artuk.org, spelling out the word dot. Whether we are listening to a podcast, reading a blog, or riding a bus, we are constantly inundated with ads. They are so commonplace that unless an advertisement is particularly good, we may barely register having even seen them. Behind each of the ads you love is a creative mind, or team of minds, that helped develop the idea. This episode will explore some of the artists who've worked within this space since the advent of modern advertising. Well, when you say when we start to see modern advertising, I mean, advertising is itself a product of modernity. That's Michelle Bogart, Professor Emeritus of Art History at Stony Brook University. The modern type of ads, which rely on bold graphic images and a limited amount of text, sometimes hand-rendered typography or very dramatic typography. That's pretty much a product of the 1890s, although sometimes you see aspects of it earlier in circus posters, for example. But it really begins in the 1890s. During this period, we begin to see more small advertisements in newspapers and magazines, and large illustrated posters become more common. Many of them start as posters for entertainment venues, so they're kind of locally oriented. And then you also start to see posters for products, especially for publications like the new mass print magazines, although they're not mass the way we think of them now, but magazines like The Century or Harper's. The most popular style that sort of comes to the fore at that time is a variant of Art Nouveau, but it depends. I mean, some of them rely very heavily on these very bold graphic forms and bright colors, but they don't have the same reliance on curlicue, sinuous lines, and decorative female figures the way that Art Nouveau posters do. But the Art Nouveau style is really a very popular, or modifications of it is is what's really very popular in in the 1890s. That's interesting because I feel like that Art Nouveau style comes back up again with the kind of psychedelic 60s advertising, again, for kind of events and bands and things like that. So that's interesting. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they, those artists like Victor Moscoso, they were looking back to the Art Nouveau style. The posters are also very influenced by the Nabi artists, artists like Pierre Bonnard and Edward Vuillard, the same use of broad swaths of bright color and very noticeable outlines and things like that you see in a number of these posters. But um, later on, the style has a renaissance. To get a good sense of the Art Nouveau style, you can look to the work of Czech artist Alphonse Mucha. He worked in Paris and is known for his ornate illustrations and commercial work. He took on a mixture of projects, including posters for the theater and product advertising. 
Some of his clients included Moet Chandon Champagne and Job Cigarette Papers. The designs often feature an image of a woman with her hair whipping about in a stylized fashion surrounded by decorative patterns or flowers. In the advertisement for Job Cigarette Papers, Muha depicted a figure smoking and smoke snaking up the background towards the company's name. Muha is often referred to as an illustrator or graphic artist. Currently, these labels may be used for artists who work commercially, but these sorts of distinctions from fine artists, in quotations, would not necessarily have been made at the time. So illustration and art were not seen as separate in the way that they came to be seen later on. So you you have designers or people, again, sometimes we might call them graphic designers, or people like Will Bradley, who came out of more of a self-taught background in printing and typography. Bradley did bicycle advertising, and he did advertising for print magazines, actually. So the print magazines commissioned posters to display in the bookstores or thereabouts to advertise the presence of that particular issue, like the summer issue of a magazine. The other artists included people like, and this is all in the United States, Louis K. Reed and Ethel Reed, who were, again, we might think of them more as designer illustrators, but they had a stature that was equal to Will Bradley and to people also like Maxfield Parrish. So Maxfield Parrish is probably one of the better known American artists who was commissioned for advertising posters in the 1890s. He came out of more of a fine art background. So he had artistic training in the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, for example. So that's a sort of new point of departure where you have these artists doing advertisements who are coming out of a fine arts training but then apply their expertise to commercial enterprises. As we've seen in past episodes on children's book illustrations and railway posters, some artists had mixed feelings about taking on commercial work. Some embraced these projects, while others tried to make clear distinctions between their fine art and commercial projects. An artist like or illustrator like N.C. Wyeth, or even someone like Rockwell Kent, who's doing advertisements later in the 1920s mostly, they were much more ambivalent about the work they were doing for commercial advertisers, but they did it anyway. What starts to happen is around 1910, as more and more illustrators start to get involved in this work and they start to get paid more and more, or the better ones do, there arises this uneasiness. And it's really around that point, around 1910 or so, that you start to see a distinction drawn between commercial art and something else. But you know, they do it. Uh, Edward Hopper did advertising. Mm. It's just that he went out of his way to conceal that fact. That's interesting. Yeah. Only recently do we know this, that a lot of these people did it. William de Kooning did advertising in the 1940s, but most people don't know that. 
Hopper worked as an illustrator in the earlier stages of his career. He'd been encouraged to study illustration by his parents, and it was this work that financially sustained him for nearly two decades. A piece he completed for the American Locomotive Company in 1944 shows a father and son standing on a platform as a large train sits on the tracks. It captures that mixture of modernity and isolation that Hopper mastered so well and could easily sit alongside any of his paintings. With well-known artists producing work of this caliber for advertisements, why is it that we don't know more about their commercial projects? Our lack of familiarity with that work is not just a function of what the artists were trying to hide, it's also a function of what historians of those artists' works chose to emphasize. So it worked both ways. And art history, in general, you know, art historians were not interested until fairly recently in this kind of commercial work. And they drew distinctions between painting that was made for a gallery or for private collectors and a painting that might be then replicated and put into an advertisement with text written by somebody else, so work that's part of a collective product. So when I started doing the work I did, that was one of the things that I had to get around was the biases against looking at this kind of stuff. So it really worked both ways. There are a number of fine artists who created advertisements for big brands, and some of them may surprise you. Georgia O'Keeffe was one of several artists to design ads for Dole Pineapple. The company paid for O'Keeffe to travel to Hawaii in exchange for her painting two pieces to use in their advertising. She spent a couple of months exploring the islands and produced one painting of a papaya tree and one of a crab claw plant. Dole was upset not to have a pineapple painting and sent O'Keeffe a plant to paint upon her return to New York. The images are the close-up view of plants for which O'Keeffe is best known, and they were featured in ads in Vogue and the Saturday Evening Post. Willem de Kooning and many, many artists were commissioned starting in the late 1930s and onward into the 1960s. They were commissioned by a company, really pathbreaking company called the Container Corporation of America to paint pictures or design graphic design of the sort that we might think, you know, associate with Paul Rand. Paul Rand was one of them for cardboard boxes. They, so the advertisements were, were for cardboard boxes. Salvador Dali did advertising for Bonwit Teller, for Brian's Hosiery, and for S.C. Johnson Paint, as well as De Beers Diamonds. And actually, Pablo Picasso, one of his paintings was used in a De Beers Diamond ad. So there's really no one who was exempt from this. It's fun to search the web for old advertisements by these artists, and during my hunt, I came across an advertisement Dali did for the car brand Datsun. It features a car atop one of the artist's signature melting clocks, a spindly spider descends on the scene from the top left, and roughly sketched figures are dotted throughout the landscape. The text on the ad states that the company wanted a man with, quote, unusual vision, end quote to portray the car, and Dotson wasn't alone in this way of thinking. In general, the brands commissioned artists who were associated with fine art or who had a reputation as a fine artist for prestige value. 
the, so there were there was prestige. There was also just the matter of grabbing people's attention, and a lot of this sort of stuff gets going in the 1930s during the Depression, when people aren't buying things. We can relate to that now, and the the companies want to maintain brand awareness, even though people are not buying necessarily. So they commission artists who are whose work is going to draw attention, in many cases, just because of the artistic and graphic quality of the work, and also artists who will make people look twice because they might be familiar with the name. It's like Michael Jordan being used to advertise Nike sneakers. You know, people are influenced by that. In a way, artists were lending their celebrity to brands via their ad designs. The use of celebrity in advertising certainly grows with the advent of television, but we can also observe this in early poster designs. If you think of the posters of Toulouse-Lautrec, for example, he painted and designed posters for these entertainment venues, Moulin Rouge, for example, but he also in some cases, depicted the celebrities of those entertainments. So, Jane, Jane Avril. So it's kind of a precursor to the idea of, of movie posters, which used celebrities to draw people in, rather than emphasizing the, the narrative of what the movie was about. As we move into the 20th century, the relationship between art and advertising was turned on its head when artists began to appropriate branding and ads into their work. This was explored most notably by pop artists. Someone like Andy Warhol in the late 1950s and early 1960s starts to build on an artistic legacy that actually a painter like Stuart Davis initiated. Stuart Davis, in the early 1920s, painted easel paintings, fine art paintings, of products like the mouthwash Odol. He painted packaging for Lucky Strike, and he created these sort of cubist variants on cubist compositions with Lucky Strike and other kinds of products at the center of them to show he said this himself, that advertising and commercial culture defined what America was as much as anything else. So he put that at the center of his work. Warhol does a similar kind of thing, takes it a bit further insofar as he depicted virtually nothing other than the product. So, for example, the Coca-Cola paintings the Campbell's soup cans, the Brillo boxes. Actually, it's advertising as packaging or packaging as advertising that he was showing in two dimensions. But in the late 1950s, he actually also painted, I don't want to say copies of advertisements, but he built on the kinds of little ads that were in the backs of magazines like ads for nose jobs or 
matchbook covers that advertise that you can become an artist if you take this illustration course and things like that. So really lowbrow kinds of ads. And he blew them up on a big canvas and painted, painted those. The, and the soup cans, he just painted in this kind of deadpan manner that struck many people as being really irreverent. But what Warhol seemed to be doing at the time that was so striking was to go against the grain of this emphasis on painting and abstract expressionist painting as an expression of the authentic self. And Warhol's work didn't seem to be about anything particularly authentic. It, it was simply painting about a soup can, uh, some mundane product that we encounter every day in advertising or on the shelf. And so it undermined the whole idea of what fine art was supposed to be about. After movements like Dada and pop art, an artistic approach encompassing various forms of visual culture has become more commonplace. Now, it's not unusual to see brands like Absolute Vodka doing artist collaborations with Keith Haring or Citroen Cars working with the Picasso estate. After the shock of Warhol and Roy Lichtenstein and the pop artists, in the 1980s, artists started to work with these divisions again, and the subjects became in part the breakdown of divisions, so it's very self-conscious, and a cynicism set in, and so now I think none of this is shocking. The divisions are not well-defined at all. I mean, there really aren't any in certain ways, except for the existence of the art market. And it's the art market and academics, in, in many cases, that continue to be invested in a division, although not necessarily because the art market has also embraced Norman Rockwell and Maxfield Parrish and all of the artists that were considered infradig by the 1950s. <laughs> they were uh, attacked. So uh, now, of course, you have the major auction houses selling Parrish and Rockwell and uh, the original paintings, not, not the reproductions. So the originals are what are valued. And that, that kind of shows how the commercial art world has been appropriated by the fine art world to some extent. Many thanks to Michelle for offering an interesting look at the relationship between art and advertising. If you'd like to learn more, she wrote a book on this topic titled Artists, Advertising, and the Borders of Art. If you enjoy this series, please tell a friend and leave us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. As always, thank you for listening and please join us again next time.